and welcome back to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. My usual co-host Jen is out today, so uh, we're joined by a special guest, the Feely to my Keely, the Feanor to my Fingolfin, the Boromir to my Faramir, the Smeagol to my Deagle, my, my brother-in-law, Joel Mueller. <laughs> well, that's quite the introduction. I mean, I, I wasn't consulted on those uh, comparisons, and I'm not sure I like being the Boromir to your Faramir, but... I guess I'll just accept it. I, I like that you keyed in on the Boromir one and not the being Smeagol. <laughs> oh, that's well, that's true. Yeah, that's true as well. I, I chose him to did you wait selectively worse? <laughs> in your comparison, was I uh, Feanor or were you? You're, Feanor? You were Feanor. Okay, I love. Feanor. Oh, you. Oh. He's one of my. He's one of my favorite characters, even though he's generally, you know, by mo- many considered well and rightly so considered to be more of an antagonist you know and and much of it uh well i guess every bad thing that result you know flows from his actions but i love the character you know he's just a larger than life driving force and uh you know some some great stories surrounding him or i guess he's kind of the centerpiece of everything in the first age right in a way so yeah Anyways, I, my my point being that I I like being the Feanor to your uh, who are you in that comparison? Fingolfin? I mean, you gotta like Fingolfin oh, okay. too. Oh, like, yeah. Okay. Well, he's got yeah. Sure, he's got a, a, a crowning moment of glory. He's he he goes one on one with Morgoth. That's right. right? That's right. He yeah, strikes yeah, a blow right. and that he what he limps forever after or something like that. Mm, I think he dies. Well, Fingol. No, I mean Morgoth. Um, Oh, Morgan. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. definitely dies. <laughs> but uh, this is a good intro, and everyone knows that you're a fan or apologist, so that sets the stage pretty well. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm an apologist. I just, uh, and I'm not quite sure I could articulate all the reasons why I like the character, even though he is the, I guess, the dark side in a, in a, many senses. He, he's designed to be. I mean, he is literally the, like the most amazing of the Eldar of all time, you know, in, in every single way, you know. So um, he's designed to be very, very enticing, which is what makes him such a dangerous character. Well, it worked for me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's what makes you such a dangerous character. You're so enticing, Joel. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I was enticed. I was enticed as a, as a young man and the, the spell has not fallen away, I guess. Um well, I've sidetracked us, so continue with what you were what you were going to say. Well, I should say I've I've wanted to have you on. I think I I asked you to be on the podcast basically as soon as we started the podcast, and uh, I, I guess I should preface this whole thing. You know, um, so we're we're brothers in law, and I, do you remember when we first discovered that the other liked Lord of the Rings? I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't remember that moment, but I mean, I, I, you know, or at least I don't remember when it happened, but I do remember it being like whenever you meet somebody and realize that they are secretly a Lord of the Rings fan, not just Lord of the Rings fan, like a very big Lord of the Rings fan, which you are, um, it just instantly kind of like a, <laughs> it creates a, a bond or like, you know, you understand each other in a way. Um, it's it like creates a shorthand. You understand each other a, a lot better just because you have this connection, I think. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's true. I think, and also, it's hard to pinpoint probably when we first identified each other that way because I think whenever you're 
like a rabid fan about something and you don't want to maybe put the other person off or about that, you know, because you don't know, especially Lord of the Rings with the movies, you don't know what kind of fan a person is. So if it comes up, there may be some lighthearted discussion about it and the realization that this person's actually like, you know, as much of a fan as you are and someone who maybe when they were young really loved this, these books and this universe, you know, that may, realization may come later after a couple of discussions about kind of the surface level stuff about Lord of the Rings. Right, right. Well, and what was nice for us is, I mean, because there are a lot of, as you said, people who are Lord of the Rings fans, but they're fans of the movies. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. And there are plenty of people who were introduced to Lord of the Rings through the movies who go on to read the books and become, you know, uh, fans of varying degrees, including all the way up to like the scholarly level. Um, so th- I'm not saying that you can't, that you need to have read the books before the, having seen the movies to be like a real fan. But no, having read the books before seeing the movies, there is like a, a a shared background. I mean, that is an experience that book readers went through. You you had something in your head. You had a headcanon, as it were. And then you go to see the movies. And we're sort of of an age where we were kind of kids when the movies came out. So the, the books still had like a very strong hold on us. And they were uh, formative. And we were still sort of being formed by them. And then we see these movies. And so that's there's kind of a, a very specific type of experience that we went through. Um, and so not only were we both big Lord of the Rings fans, but we shared that kind of progression. Um, and so we've, we've had a lot of these types of conversations over the years. And I, I knew that if I could drag you on to the podcast, that it, it would be a good conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I can, I can definitely, um, discuss ad nauseum, uh, Tolkien, uh, lore and, uh, the books, I mean, for sure. But I know that this podcast is not necessarily about that. I, in you know, as you know, one of the reason I, I was sort of re- reticent of, to come on the podcast is because I haven't been following the development of the prime show as closely as i know you and some others are because of the reasons we've discussed uh, as far as uh you know keeping my expectations reasonable and not trying to not not trying to become too invested in the show and kind of taking a wait and see approach well and all the more reason why i thought this would be great because jen and i you know we're pouring over leaks and the guests that we have on they're closely watching everything so like a sort of an echo chamber type of phenomenon can start to occur we have our opinions that they're formed and that informs the way that we view leaks and the next leak and the next leak so having you on who you haven't been watching as closely it may be a little more fresh um for you and we'll get you know maybe a more <laughs> um unfiltered or un untainted by prior information type of reaction you know? yeah so, cer- certainly more uninformed I can guarantee that. <laughs> and, you know, I guess I should I should say, I think this is also good because we kind of have slightly different perspectives on it in that I am cautiously, you know, optimistic. I'm I'm hopeful and generally optimistic. I'd say you're kind of cautiously pessimistic. So both of us, like, it could be good and we'll wait and see if it's good. We haven't made up our minds, but I'm a little just more hopeful and, and you're a little more worried that, like, you know, maybe it's going in the wrong direction. Hmm. Am I am I fair in that characterization? 
Um, like I, yeah, I, I, mean, I think that is my default, and it always has been. I mean, even when the original trilogy movies came out, I, you know, the term then was a purist if you were leaned more towards just a as much of a pure interpret you know a pure transition from book to screen of of lord of the rings you know i guess you you're a purist and you only wanted the smallest of changes and those changes could only take place for the best of reasons and uh, so i suppose that's how i've always been in a way um over time the movies of course have come to you know i i enjoy them greatly and i'm not i don't think as um um close-minded perhaps about some things and you know understand that there's good reasons for some of the narrative changes and things of that nature that they made in the movies but uh, a lot of the what could be said i think in a positive way about changes in the in the Lord of the Rings trilogy can't be said for the Hobbit movies. So, <laughs> I mean, just to be, I'll be right. as diplom- diplomatic as possible. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of those movies. So, um, I feel a bit, uh, maybe, maybe like I'm st- still a purist, but maybe for different reasons. And before it was because I was such a diehard fan of the of the books and Tolkien's works um and now I think with the Hobbit movies you see what could happen with yeah right right things getting out of control getting so far away from the original works it is really amazing I mean they really are two poles in that the the Lord of the Rings trilogy was really really great I mean you can really get into this details and you know, quibbling about this change and that change, but generally speaking, I think for a lot of people, um, they got the tone right, and whatever issues you have with them, they are captivating movies. They're moving movies. Yeah, right. They touched a lot of people. On the other side of the pole are the Hobbit movies, and we don't need to get into that too much. But I, they just disappoint a lot of people. You know, as just as movies, setting aside fidelity to the text, just as movies, they're kind of there's a lot of buffoonery and. Um, I, I don't think the laughs work that well. I don't think the drama works that well. Um, and somehow these were the products of the same creative team. Um, granted, there are, you know, there's a production story behind The Hobbit that maybe like explains how it got that way. But it is amazing that you could have two wildly different products resulting from the same creative team. Right. Yeah. And I would, and also, I mean, with, I guess I don't know off the top of my head what the sort of what the finances of the two look like, but I, it seems to me that the resources were so much greater for The mm. Hobbit once it was an established, you know, it was going to be successful, and all this money was behind it. As, and the trilogy, I mean, the original, The Lord of the Rings, screen, you know, it was. I wouldn't say it was an underdog, but my understanding of the production was that it was a, you know, a gamble, not a sure thing. Right. And that they, um, you know, they, they, did, they had constraints um, that were just not there 
for The Hobbit. And whenever you hear about this new Amazon series, you hear about yeah. how much money is involved. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, so part, I think part of me uh, hears that and thinks, oh, no. Right, right. <laughs> but- yeah, we've we've talked about that on this podcast before. <laughs> you know, when most people talk about the budget, it's usually framed in a positive light. Oh, look at how much money Amazon's devoting to it. They must be serious about it. You know, they care, blah, blah, blah. To me, I it's think, like, yeah. you know, an unlimited bur- budget is a curse. And I think there are a lot of examples, uh, you know, look at Star Wars when the success of a trilogy, an original trilogy, leads to an unlimited budget. And looser creative controls, you know, from the movie studios, and then all of a sudden George Lucas has nobody editing him, and uh, then the prequels are what the prequels are. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that that was exactly what happened with The Hobbit, but you're right. The budget was a lot bigger with The Hobbit, um, and maybe no one was second-guessing Peter Jackson at that point, whereas with the original trilogy, there were a lot of moments, you know, a lot, a, through most of the filming um, – because it was unknown whether or not it would be a success. And if it was a failure, it would be the death knell of the studio, essentially. Um, there was a lot of tension and a lot of uh, oversight and questions. And the whole vibe was very different, which probably affected the um, creative process. And one would think that that would affect the creative process in a negative way. But s- somehow I think that there being stakes oh, yeah. the, the improves threat. the creative process. I mean, yeah. Wynn has the threat of failure or you know those those exactly those high stakes you know not been a very important element in success i mean it seems like that they go they almost go hand in hand with with good art i'm I'm sure there are so so many examples of uh yeah i mean a, a lump of coal becomes a diamond under pressure right so that's you know maybe that's a metaphor that works for the creative process as well well, we do a lot of different stuff on this podcast. Sometimes we talk about the Peter Jackson film. Sometimes we talk about other adaptations. Um, and sometimes we do episodes that are strictly focused on the upcoming Amazon Lord of the Rings, uh, the Rings of Power series. This episode is one of those. We're just talking about uh, the Rings of Power. So there's a lot of spoilers. So spoiler warning for our listeners. If you are not interested in uh, getting any leaks or any foreknowledge of the series, and click away and come back for uh, one of our other types of episodes. Um and we, we got a few leaks to talk about, most of them courtesy of Fellowship of Fans, which is a, a sort of the modern, the one ring.net, in that all the leaks pretty much come from them. Um, so go check them out. They put up their own videos where they talk at length about these even longer than we do. So um, we're taking a few of these leaks, putting them together um, that are kind of topical. So over a couple months, we've got a few leaks about Celebrimbor. So we're talking a lot about Celebrimbor today. Um, that's kind of the focus of today's episode. But before we get there, there's a couple little little nuggets that I wanted to talk about. You play video games, right, Joel? Oh, yeah, when I can. Did you ever play any of the Lord of the Rings video games? You know, Lotro, anything else? Um, when Lord of the Rings Online first came out, you know, many years ago, I did, yeah, I did play it. Um, and I think I played it through the Mines of Moria expansion, which was, I think maybe the first big expansion um okay in the in the games and and then uh, you know uh not much after that all right well cuz i don't play video games basically at all anymore and um so but this first little piece of news it's it's 
not really related to the show, but it will interest some people and all the video games players. Um, there is a video game coming out on September 1, 2022. It is um, the... Lord of the Rings Gollum. So it's it's a game about Gollum, the Gollum game. Um, I, I think it's just the Lord of the Rings Gollum. Um, coming to PC, consoles, and at a later date on Nintendo Switch. So on September 1st, 2022. So that's literally the day before the Amazon Prime show comes out. It is unaffiliated with the Amazon show. It is, as far as I know, the parent companies are in no way related. So they're really just drafting on the um, attention that the show is getting seems like odd timing. I would think that they would maybe want to do it right after the the show um, because there will be a lot more eyeballs after the show, you know, because more and more people will get into it as, as the series goes on, but maybe they're uh, hedging their bets because if the show is a disaster, <laughs> then, then they wouldn't want to release the game after that. Um, but it, you know, the cover image looks pretty cool. I guess you get to be Gollum. I don't know much about it, but for you, uh, uh, video game fans, maybe it's worth checking out. Hmm. I wonder at what stage in Gollum's life you get to be Gollum. I imagine it's not the sitting under the mountain part, right? For, me- for many years. Well, or maybe you start there, and you you know your first task is to get out of the the mountain. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it seems pro- like a, a depressing game. <laughs> it's kind of a depressing character to play and you know the mostly what happens to him is he gets tortured and he's sad and hungry and you know evading capture there's not a whole lot of like he's not doing much other than trying to avoid getting killed well i mean i guess that's always the question you think they're going to hit the major story beats of of the golem story or are you as the player able to avoid these situations completely by playing with golem I mean, is this one of those games where you can go build a house and farm land? <laughs> right, right, right. No, no, I kid, of course. But yeah, can in the game can Gollum, you know, uh, achieve redemption? Is there uh, a, a path can he for him? win? Can he win right. in the end and uh, save the ring from certain destruction? Right, right. Can I, he claim the ring for himself and de- destroy Sauron? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have heard just mention of this game here or there, and I thought it was kind of like a, a stealth game, mm-hmm. you know, where you yeah you play Golem and, and you sort of sneak around, but I don't know much about it beyond that. Well, there's a sort of pivoting on to the show itself, um, and before we get into our sort of narrative leaks, this tweet from Fellowship of Fans is about Weta Workshop and Weta Digital. Now that we had known that Weta Digital was involved in, in the show. Uh, we already knew that from before. Weta, of course, was the, did all the special effects for the Lord of the Rings movies, and they were kind mm-hmm. of they cut their teeth on the Lord of the Rings movies. They were really kind of created as a part of the production process of trying to get those movies going. I you know I think Peter Jackson basically created Weta shortly before rings was in production or you know while he was shopping it around and he had to like scramble for other projects to keep those people employed and keep them on the line in the hopes that lord of the rings would come through and so it's it's really actually a fascinating story the the juggling act that peter jackson uh, accomplished in getting rings up and doing it all in-house all the special effects in-house with his own company and now weta is you know between weta and industrial light and magic which is the special effects company that george lucas founded um, those two companies now are basically the two, you know, 10,000 pound gorillas in Hollywood. They do all the special effects or do all the cutting edge stuff. So Peter Jackson is 
not just the Lord of the Rings director. He's kind of a mogul because he owns these special effects houses. Mm. Um, and we knew that Weta Digital would be involved in the show. It is now confirmed that Weta Workshop also was involved, which I think that we had had inklings. But it's good to know that the whole, you know, the whole gang's back together. I really, the practical effects in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy is really what I get excited about. I mean, obviously, Weta Digital does a good good job, but the restrained use of digital effects in the original trilogy was what was great, and the focus on the practical effects. Now that balance tipped a little bit in the hobbits and they had more money and they went a little crazy with the digital effects so i was a little worried when i heard when only weta digital was confirmed i was worried that that amazon you know and it's a new era a new company maybe they would be more inclined to focus on the digital effects but um, with weta workshop confirmed and some other things the original little teaser image they really do seem to be focusing on practical effects and i hope that bears out because i think it just looks so much better it lasts a lot longer yeah no no disagreement there i mean the practical effects in the lord of the rings trilogy are definitely one of the the highlights and uh you know what a workshop whether it's anything like what it was when it first started you know during lord of the rings the original trilogy uh whether it's in its current iteration, um, you know, it's it's a hopeful sign, at least. Um, you know, those, yeah, those movies, certainly the look stands the test of time. Yeah, and what is still headed up by Richard Taylor, who is the, oh, okay. the right. founder, you know, the original guy. So he's he's still running the show there. So at least we still have that creative, the same creative mind behind it. Obviously, I'm sure it's a much larger company. They've refined their practices and all that, but. I mean, at least is the same creative folks. Um, you know, this is a bit of a dig- digression, but what the hell? Um, when originally we heard that, what is it, Guillermo del Toro was going to do the Hobbit movies, I was so excited. Again, not because I had any issue with Peter Jackson, just because I was excited to see a different, a different take, a different look. Um, and I was also excited because he's known for using practical effects. I mean, you look at Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, he's using you know puppetry and uh, Muppets and and makeup and things like that over digital effects or, you know, the digital effects are designed to complement the practical effects. So I was like, perfect. If you're going to get anybody, please make it Guillermo del Toro. That's so great because we're going to get another uh, practical effect focused look, but it's going to be very different from what Peter Jackson did. So I was really excited about that. Obviously that didn't pan out. He ended up leaving for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons, but you know, practical effects just make such a difference. And even, and we're seeing that now, I think there's a bit of a shift back. Everyone was so excited about digital, but you know, look at the Star Wars shows, you know, the Mandalorian has sort of taken a step back and they're like intentionally dumbing down their practical effects as well to, to more closely mirror the practical effects of the original Star Wars trilogy, right? I mean, the, the masks aren't very lifelike. Um, the the alien heads aren't very lifelike, you know, and they're doing mm-hmm. that on purpose, right? Um, which obviously they're trying to tap into nostalgia there, but also I, there's an interesting phenomenon, and there's probably studies on it. But I think when you're watching something that you know is not real, and it's like obvious enough that it's not real, you can then kind of like set that aside and just and buy into the, you know, the world you're being presented with, you know, it's not real, you know, it's Muppets, you know, it's a cartoon, whatever, but then you're, you're in this world and then you, you can enjoy it a little bit better when the movie is trying to be real, presenting it to you. Like this is reality, making it as realistic as possible. 
the um anytime it 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 strays from reality it like is jarring to your brain and uncomfortable and yeah, that's what we talk about when we talk about the CGI is poor. It's because it doesn't look realistic and that they're trying to be realistic. So I think it's almost better and more effective and more enjoyable to like, let's just have some Muppets. <laughs> we mm-hmm. bought in, you know, we know we're not looking at reality, but I can, um, I'm, um, it's sort of a sub reality that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm setting aside the, the expectation that it's going to be real and it's more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, whenever when i hear weta workshop uh, i don't necessarily think about full uh, characters or really big practical effects what i think about is the quality of the craftsmanship of say the armor or the weaponry mm. that was in the original trilogy and that stuff to me i mean really uh and you know i, I think it goes hand in hand with so those sort of classic Tolkien artists being involved too, John Howe and um, Alan Lee. Yeah, Alan Lee. I mean, between those two and Weta's work on the the armor and the weaponry, um, with a couple, with a couple exceptions. I mean, I think across the board, it's something that I really love about the trill the the Lord of the Rings film trilogy and uh you know hope that that crosses over into into this this new series well and a fun little sidebar there you mentioned john howe Um, i recently learned that john howe in addition to being a great artist is is a very serious amateur um uh armorer uh, like a medieval armorer. I, I don't even know if amateur is the right word. He's probably, I, I think he's very, very serious. And so when he was brought onto the set, it was sort of like a a pet interest of his um, to go check out what Weta Workshop was doing. And um, his offices with Alan Lee were basically right next to the armory part of Weta Workshop. It was very close to Weta Workshop. So they could like look out their window and see what they were working on. And uh, he was apparently very skeptical that they would get somebody who was legitimate. You know, he's like, I'm in New Zealand, this little, you know, basically a little startup crew. They're not going to know what they're doing. They're not going to get somebody who's legitimate, you know, a legitimate medieval quality craftsman. And, but, and then he went over there and checked it out. And apparently the guy that they had got was, was very, very good and knew his stuff. And so John Howe would go like on his breaks, he could be seen, you know, swinging swords and playing around with the armor and the, and the swords um, that they were making. So I, I just love that visual, you know, and if you've seen John Howe, he's, I mean, he's an artist. He's a slim guy, and just right. imagining him swinging around a sword um, with hobbits running around—I don't know. I just love it. <laughs> I love thinking about that. How many different fandoms can you love at once? At Four Cats Boutique, there is no limit. Katie and Jordan have prints, bookmarks, stickers, earrings, keychains, and more for all of our beloved fandoms. Get yourself a set of Lord of the Rings bookmarks—one special for each in the trilogy. Maybe some Hobbit hole earrings. A Wheel of Time sticker or some Star Wars blueprints of a TIE fighter and an X-Wing. You can even find prints for the Legends of Zelda, like Majora's Mask or the Master Sword. Dune, Marvel, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, the list goes on and on. So head over to 4Cats Boutique on Etsy to get something for yourself or a loved one from almost any fandom you can think of. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Um, Alright, so... Enough dilly dallying. Let's get into the main event here. There's a couple. Um, there's a, a couple leaks, and they're all about Celebrimbor. So, I hope you remember Celebrimbor Joel because it's it's all about him. So, 
The first tweet from Fellowship of Fans about Celebrimbor says, Source overview, quote, The way Payne and McKay are approaching Celebrimbor is that not all characters in the show will necessarily like him, such as in council meetings, but they respect him and seems to be an almost angelic figure. Um, and let, I'll do the next one. Celebrimbor's relationship with the dwarves will truly start to begin from episode four and beyond in season one of The Rings of Power. So two things here. People don't necessarily like him, but he's treated as an almost angelic figure. So he's not necessarily liked, but he's respected. And his arc doesn't really begin until episode four, which is midway through season one. So um, I'll start with a, a little observation. Seems to be an almost angelic figure. I'll just focus on that little piece of it. I'm not sure exactly what is meant by that, but it it recalls to me um, from the Fellowship of the Ring when we see Arwen for the first time. And I'm talking about the movie um, where she t- takes the place of uh, Glorfindel, you know, arriving and meeting them in the, in the woods when they're running from the Nazgul. And she's she first appears as kind of an angelic figure. There's this backlighting. She's in a white flowing robe, or at least that's how Frodo sees her. Um, and then we see her from the perspective of the other characters, and she's just in her green sort of wood attire. And, you know, that was a, a reflection of an adaptation of how we're supposed to see Gorfindel in the books. And Gan- which Gandalf later explains as, well, he explains to Frodo, yeah, you saw him that way because you were seeing him as he appears on the other side and the, the unseen world. Um, and, you know, because Glorfindel had grown up in uh, Amman and seen the trees, the two trees of Valinor, he has this other quality, this sort of angelic quality of, that you can see on the other side if you're able to peer into that you know, other realm. And Celebrimbor indeed grew up uh, in the years of the trees and so to the extent that's what that is what they're getting at, um, that would make sense. Um, and it would the distinction between the Noldor who grew up in the years of the trees and, and saw the light of the trees, um, distinguishing them from the Sindar who never went to Valinor but stayed in Middle Earth, but then who like, you know, mixed with the Noldor and became a part of those kingdoms. That might be what's going on there, and if it is, I'm 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 into it. I like that they're trying to draw that distinction and, and showing the ways that the Noldor are different from the Cinderin elves. Yeah, I, I, you'll have to fill me in here a little bit. Do you know what they mean when they're referencing council meetings, and that who who all is in attendance at these council meetings? Do we know? So no, and, and that's another thing about all these leaks. I don't know exactly how they're sourced, like where they get this information, but there's no context that goes with them. It's, you know, someone sends yeah. it to someone in the production, I guess, sends them this information and there's no explanation that goes with it. So we're, you know, we got to take it all with a grain of salt. Um, you know, Keller Brimbor, we know was depending on the version, he was either like the founder and leader of a region or, you know, Gla- or Gladriel is the leader of Aregion and Celebrimbor is like just the chief craftsman and the, the leader of the Gwythi Mirodain who are the, the craftspeople, you know, the guild of, of craftsmen within the um, kingdom of Aregion. And he's just very well respected because he's the greatest craftsman since Feanor. So either he's the leader of the whole kingdom or he's just the leader of the craftsmen within a kingdom led by Galadriel. Um, I think it's going to be the former in this show because from what we've seen, Galadriel at this point at the start of the show is kind of 
out fighting orcs or whatever. So she's not leading a kingdom, or at least she's a leader, an absentee leader. So I, but I think it's more likely that Celebrimbor, the version we're going to get is a leader of a region. And um, so council meetings just could be, you know, the council of leaders in Eregion, um, you know, his uh, his subordinates, or maybe Eregion's led by a group. We don't know. So other elves, though. Oh, yeah, I, I, mean, I would think other elves. And, yeah. and t- right. Well, to, I was getting to your point as far as, you know, this this idea of what's in how he would appear angelic. Certainly, if you're comparing him to, say, like Arwen's appearance in the the films uh, you know from the perspective of a hobbit or a human perhaps he would appear angelic uh maybe when you've got a sindarin elf who's never seen the light of the trees perhaps someone like kelbrimbor would appear uh, angelic to him Mm -hmm. but certainly not to other elves of a similar lineage or you know he's what two generations removed from um he's Feanor's grandson. Yeah, he, he is, exactly. Right? He's one of the the one of the um which which son of Feanor's uh, is he the son uh, of Oh, now you're testing my Dragon. memory. One of the well, it's one of the seas. It's it's either it's either Caranthir or or Cur, uh Cur, I think it's Curafin. Right? Um yeah, son of Curafin. Yep. Okay. So, and for our listeners, we did a full character deep dive in episode eleven. Uh, in episode eleven, we did a full de- character deep dive of Celebrimbor. So, y- if you want to rewind and go check that out, we really got into all these details. Yeah, clearly, I didn't listen to episode eleven, <laughs> but neither did I. I couldn't. Uh, apparently, I couldn't remember it either. Um, but so I, I, actually, I think, anyways, well, me... your interpretation makes sense if he's if he's surrounded by, I suppose, lesser lesser beings uh in a sense but well actually um, let me let me stop you there let me ask you about that because i'm not sure exactly how that how that all works um and maybe it's a point of debate but i think that the the only reason frodo was able to see um arwen or in the books glorfindel you know on the other side it wasn't because he was a lesser being and glorfindel uh, being of the nolder that's you know, true it wasn't that he was a lesser being it was that he had been stabbed by the 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 morgul blade so he was passing to the other side all the other you know hobbits and aragorn they didn't see him that way or at least we have no in- indication that they did so if if that's the case if that's the way it works then i don't think Celebrimbor would appear angelic to the other elves he would actually only appear angelic to the other noldor because they would sort of see each other in that light because they're all sort of walking in this other plane i guess mhm well, I suppose that's true. I um, I'm trying to remember in the books where it's Glorfindel, um, whether it's only Frodo's perspective that we see him through at that moment. Um, and I guess now that I think about it, it may be that Gandalf does explain to Frodo why he saw him that way, and it was because he was wearing the ring. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think we see anything from the other characters' perspective, so we don't know for sure. But I'm just inferring it because when Gandalf explains it to Frodo, he says you're able to see him that way because, you know, mm-hmm. you have been stabbed by the Morgul blade and you're passing on to the other side. So you know, presumably, if that's the reason, then the, then I assume that the other characters would not have been able to see him that way. 
Mm-hmm. Well, then, I guess you may be right that other uh, Noldor uh, or elves that have seen the light of the two trees see each other that way, though uh, Celebrimbor wouldn't be the only one, so I don't know why he in particular would be thought of as angelic to other uh, high elves, I suppose. Right. But maybe it's just uh, maybe a, a a loose usage of the word angelic. Right. You know, they also say res- respect. Um, so it could just be that he's, re- you know, his lineage, right. he has a high lineage. Um, he, clearly the, high, you know, the best craftsman of his mm-hmm. age. So people perhaps object to maybe... Um, and I don't, you know, I'm trying to remember in the Silmarillion, or even if there's, if this is even touched upon in Unfinished Tales, how much characterization Celebrimbor really gets, or whether it's just, it's left to judge him by his deeds, you know, by his actions, and... Um, it's very, you're right, it's just, very Just the, sort of, the act, the hubris pursuing these um the rings i don't and i don't know how much of that is in secret or how much is known to say a council um whether he's just sort of viewed with um you know there's a divisiveness i guess or people see him as someone to respect but also some of his actions are perhaps something that uh makes them question right him and certainly being of the line of Feanor, you know, makes that obviously. I don't know how much Feanor, how much screen time he's going to get in this <laughs> series, but um, you know, anybody who's familiar with the lore will know that. I suppose being a his grandson, people are going to have mixed feelings. Other other right. elves are going to have mixed right. feelings about him. And we saw in some other set images, like I'm thinking of the 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 images that were released in the Vanity Fair article. The Feanorian star, which is Feanor's symbol, is sort of sigil, kind of shows up everywhere on Galadriel's um, mail. You know, she wears shirts of mail and armor. You see it on there. At least I think it's the Feanorian star. It looks very similar to me. Um, there's an image of Galadriel and Elrond meeting in a really beautiful setting, and there's a big star behind them that looks to me like the Feanorian star. So even though Feanor is... Feanor, he's like a mini Morgoth in some ways, you know, very, very problematic character. They seem to be carrying his sigil through, you know, a lot of the Noldoran, uh, Noldor cultural elements. And so we'll see exactly how they approach that, whether Feanor is sort of a beloved or uh, character among the surviving Noldor or not. But, and that will affect you know, the extent to which Celebrimbor's yeah. lineage would make him more or less respected, more or less trusted. Yeah, he's right. I, I don't think, I, I don't think in any interpretation, unless you're his sons or his descendants, could he be beloved? Right. I think most of the characters that are going to be the primary protagonists would have to be, would disapprove. Right. I mean, I think Galadriel and, and, Finrod and they follow Fe- you know Feanor out of Valinor not because they believe in him or took his oath or but just to be part of this great venture I right, believe right. or you know they they have these these other reasons they have their own that, ambitions and did, you know of course 
yeah, and st- stood aside when Feanor was slaying other elves, so or at least didn't fully understand what was going on if they participated. And, and Galadriel, and then, in like said, fought fiercely against the the kin slaying. Yeah, so it would be perhaps his house and his oath. Um, is symbolic of the reason why the the high elves are fighting, um, but that he himself is not a character that's going to be right. beloved by probably even by his. Well, we'll see what they do with Celebrimbor. Right. Re- perhaps respected, perhaps emulated, but probably not beloved. I, I think you're right about that. At least if we're talking, if we're staying perfectly true to the lore, I think you were right. Because at this point, of course, this is after the end of the First Age. This is after the War of Wrath, after the War of the Silmarils. So all of the deeds and their consequences, all the deeds of Feanor and their consequences have sort of played out. Um, There really aren't, not to say that there aren't any ramifications, there are tiny ripples, but the primary effects of Feanor's misdeeds are pretty much over. His is a tale of the First Age. Um, And so at this point, everyone kind of knows Maybe we shouldn't have followed Feanor. Maybe <laughs> he was a little misguided. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Celebrimbor, in particular, you know, in, in the first age already, not just at this point, but in the first age, he had uh, he never took the oath of Feanor, and because he's a grandson, not a son, and he abandoned his father. You know, he said, "I'm not with you, Dad. I'm not with you, uncles. You know, I don't agree with what you're doing." And so, um. He departed from his his family and didn't stand by them and said, you know, and I'm talking thinking of the the tale of Baron and Luthien when um, his uncles tried to kill Baron and and he he did not stand by them and he stayed stayed behind basically. So um, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, that should make him a little more trusted. Um, you know, Galadriel. It's an interesting connection. You know, Celebrimbor's uncle is the one that is basically responsible for Galadriel's brother's death. Um. And so whether or not that makes Galadriel dislike and distrust Celebrimbor just because of the family connection, or maybe she likes him more because Celebrimbor criticized that action by his uncles. And um, so maybe that brings them closer together. I don't know. But I do like, it's a little unclear what it means, you know, when it says not all characters in the show will necessarily like him. You know, that the meaning of that really depends on who these other characters are, whether they're good characters, bad characters, whether they can be trusted. Um, but to the extent it's setting up a Celebrimbor that maybe has some negative traits, still potentially blinded by his ambition, some prideful in his own respect, um, I like that because I think that is, that is very consistent with, with his journey. You know, uh, uh, Of all the, the great elves, he's the one who accepts Sauron in the guise of Anatar, you know, willingly. He's misled because he desperately wants to um, develop his craft, and so he kind of buys what Sauron is selling. Whereas Elrond and Gilgalad, they're not buying it. Galadriel, she's not fooled. So Celebrimbor, for all of his good qualities, he is the one who is fooled by Sauron. So he should be kind of a mixed bag, a little bit of a conflicted character. Yeah, and I I would say I don't know if I agree with you necessarily um, that the all the ripples of the oath of Feanor are are resolved, I guess, at the end of the first age. You're right, there is a, you know, a battle at the end and Morgoth is overthrown. But I think that in, Mel- in making Celebrimbor 
the ma- the the individual who accepts Sauron, you know, in order to accomplish the making of these rings, or I guess I would say, I don't. Maybe you you'll re- recall whether Sauron puts the idea into Celebrimbor's head, or whether Celebrimbor is already pursuing something like this, and then Sauron um, aids him. I don't recall, but. I would say that there is, uh, I don't think it would be reaching to say that Tolkien is making a connection that this is still a ripple of the Oath of Feanor, the rebellion against the gods, and the hubris involved in Feanor, I guess, um, um, loving the works of his own right. hands and that drive, driving him to, to take this, uh, this, this dire oath. And that uh, that blood is still in Celebrimbor, and that that's it's part of the same threat. That's that's fair. And I mean, you know, the 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 fact that the Noldor are present in Middle Earth in the way that they are. I mean, that is all due to Feanor. To the extent, so to the extent that there are any um, events involving the Noldor in the Second and Third Ages, that's all a result of of the Feanorian revolt, right? So. Yeah, right, but 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 Galadriel and Caleb, uh, Galadriel at least made a choice not to return to Valinor. Yeah. She wanted to remain in Middle Earth, and it's not, I think you were saying that Celebrimbor made that same decision, but just that that connection with with Feanor. Sure. Um, He's got a little bit of his grandpappy in him for sure, right, and. <sighs> You know this. I don't know how much of this will even factor in to the prime. You know the the uh, the prime show. You know how deep they will delve into this sort of the first age stuff and the uh, Feanor. I mean, it sounds like at least they're going to have to touch upon Galadriel, uh, Finrod. Right. You know her her brother. And, well, and we did one of the images in the little teaser. It was confirmed that we were looking at Finrod at the during the War of Wrath. So they are going to show an image of you know a first age elf who dies before the second age um and a first age battle. Um so even though this show is primarily set in the second age, we are going to get at least some glimpses of the first age. And in terms of well how much they get got to get into that, that is a bit of an open question, but we can shed a little bit of light on that. Um that the rights that they have, they only have the rights to whatever is written in the Lord of the Rings and the appendices. So they've purchased the rights to create TV series out of the Lord of the Rings and the appendices. So that means anything that is referenced in the Lord of the Rings is fair game. Now, exactly how that works is a little squishy. I don't you know, because there are lots of things. Baron and Luthien are referenced in the Lord of the Rings. Thangaradrim is referenced in, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, I think Turin Turambar is referenced in the Lord of the Rings when Elrond's talking about who uh, um, saying that Frodo will, you know, be able to sit at the table of all the great elf friends, you know, Baron and Turin. Um, so there are a lot of very passing references to major tales in the first stage. Does that mean that it opens the door totally to those tales? I don't think so. Um, my understanding is that they can then sort of approach the Tolkien estate to start pulling in other materials from the Silmarillion to the extent they want to explore those things that are referenced. So, I don't know, maybe that created more questions than it answers, but 
basically whatever is referenced in the in the Lord of the Rings and the appendices is what they're primarily going off of. And then they can sort of on an ad hoc, not an ad hoc basis, but uh, a one off basis to the extent they need to really need something from the Silmarillion or the Unfinished Tales, I think they can ask for permission and the Tolkien estate can decide whether to grant it or let them delve into that material. Um, so I'm, I would think right. they'd have to do that at least a little bit. Yeah. No, and I'm not saying that Feanor won't get a shout out or something, or there may be, you know, there, there won't be a reference here or there to some of these first stage events, but it seems to me that uh, with a show like this, in order not to alienate people that are not, you know, uh, really into the lore, to streamline things. So, say, if Galadriel has a conflict with Celebrimbor, the conflict can be a result of Celebrimbor's choices and decisions in regards to the rings and his trust of this Sauron character, um, Anatar, you know, without referencing the Feanorian oath and Feanor and talking about sort of that deeper history between their two families, right? The, the conflict could be created and the characters could interact on a level that doesn't require bringing in all that, that deep lore and history. And so that was really what I was pondering, like how, right. how, how far will they go with steeping this in some of that, lore and history or will they um you know keep it more the conflict um more to the the conflict uh the present conflict which you know could very well be a compelling narrative and one need to have all of that deep history of course something like someone like me who's a fan of the the stories and tolkien loves that sort of stuff and and so you know if it's not there you you, you miss it but it's not necessarily needed probably for the broader audience. Right. And I, I hope that they basically approach it the way that Tolkien would approach it, which is, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, there are, that history is there and it informs everything, but it is not explained. Um, you know, there are all kinds of references. The reference to Turin Turinbar um, is uh, what the Tolkien scholar Michael Drought calls a textual ruin. It's there. And it creates this sort of sense of reality and coherence, you know, coherence in a of a of a massive legendarium that underlies the story. But it's not explained ever. <laughs> um, and I hope that they do something like that with the mm-hmm. show, where I hope that the screenwriters are aware of that history, they write with that history in mind, but that they don't do the fans a disservice of just explaining everything, which is very tempting. You know, let let's just tell the audience what the history is and make it extreme, like um, have a little scene of dialogue where we just explain the backstory. Um, I, I think that would do a disservice to the, to the narrative and to the depth of the material. I think what makes the depth so effective is that it's, it's there, um, but it's not focused on and it doesn't need to be focused on unless, you know, to the extent it really yeah. needs to come into play, then yeah, bring it in. But um, otherwise just let it, ripple through everything that you're doing yeah perhaps or, or perhaps they're taking a um taking a, a sign from uh the game of thrones series and they're just going to they're just setting it up for lord of the rings the first age um in the same way that now we have the the house <laughs> right. of the dragon 
um, you know, in, is this, did, they, did I read somewhere that it's supposed to be five seasons, this prime right, series? Right, five or six seasons, yeah. yeah. Right. So maybe five years down the line we'll get Lord of the Rings on Prime the right. first stage. They'll have to they'll and, have to do uh, some work to get the rights. All, it'll all but, be teed yeah. up. <laughs> well, in terms of exploring what Killer Brimbor's role in this show will be, um, the next two tweets will get into that, and um, I'll just read them now. And these come from two different time periods. These these leaks, but they kind of go together. Um, one we already read. Killer Brimbor's relationship with the dwarves will truly start to begin from Episode Four and beyond. Uh, and then a later tweet that his story arc and involvement, Caleb Brimbor's story arc and involvement, won't begin properly until around episode four. So uh, we've really got confirmation. He doesn't really come into play until midway through the season. Uh, and then another piece of this tweet, Caleb Brimbor and the dwarves will forge rings together at some point near the end of season one. Okay, so um, I think that in a show called The Rings of Power, Caleb Brimbor, who forged the rings, should be a very, very central character. And for a lot of reasons that we've touched on before, it makes total sense that he would be at the center of a lot of the intrigue and the dramatic relationships. His relationship with Galadriel, we've already touched on. You know, his uncle is basically responsible for her brother's death. Um, he is also the only, basically the only high elf in Middle-earth that is deceived by Sauron. So, you know, to the extent we're going to see Sauron as Anatar, we're going to see him through his relationship with Celebrimbor. Um, in some versions of it, Anatar slash Sauron actually gets Celebrimbor to rebel against Galadriel and drive her out. I mean, if they pursue that plotline from the Unfinished Tales, that is really, really interesting. So he should be a central, central figure. Um, I'm not sure what to make of the fact then that he only appears in episode four. And I could you could interpret it, you know, halfway through the season. You can interpret it in one of two ways. Um, either... They're delaying the appearance of a major character because they're doing sort of a slow burn type show. They're really taking their time and they don't want to jump into this major important character too early. So it's maybe that's actually a good thing because I like slow development of characters and slow development of stories. Or maybe it means that he's not a main character at all. You know, we'll, we'll know that he forges the rings of power, but we're not going to be watching the story through his point of view. We're not going to be watching his plotline unfold, it's going to be, the focus will be elsewhere. Um, and I'll add one other nugget in to think about, or to chew on when we think about this, is he's being played by Charles Edwards, who's pretty old um, to be playing a Celebrimbor, or really any elf. Charles Edwards is uh, in his 50s. And so if he were to be a main character... Um, he's you know he's 52 now, so he's probably 51 when he's filming. If he's going to be a main character for the whole series, he'll be 56, 57 by the end of the series. It's you know pretty old for an immortal elf, especially when you put him next to Morfid Clark, who's supposed to be older than him. Uh, but Morfid Clark is you know a very very young woman in reality. So are they thinking? Well, we're not going to worry about Charles Edwards being pushing 60 at the end of the series because Caleb Brimmer is not going to appear at the end of the series. Now we're totally speculating. I have no idea, but um, let, me, let me just get your reactions to that. Hmm. Well, I'm reading this tweet and it does say that his story arc and involvement won't begin properly until around episode four and onwards. So my feeling is that he'll probably appear earlier than episode four, but 
it will be perhaps not uh, maybe um, too meaty of uh, maybe won't get too much screen time or maybe he'll do some brooding. Maybe there'll be some introductory sort of things, but that it won't, uh, um, you know, it won't, it won't begin in earnest this this uh, storyline involving the rings um perhaps until a few episodes in we'll just see a moody Celebrimbor just banging on his anvil all by himself yeah maybe some dream sequences where he's dreaming of rings <laughs> sure <laughs> or you know or uh, dream sequence i mean you could all you can always do dream sequences he could be dreaming of all sorts of things. Uh, first stage right, battles, right, right. you know. It could be maybe some preliminary interactions with the Sauron character, though perhaps you know more than I do about when he's supposed to be introduced. I, I know that I had heard or read something that that was not going to be really the focus of the series until, or perhaps it was just his, well, yeah, you, you can yeah. tell me. But his appearance was maybe not supposed to take right. Sauron Sauron is not supposed to be the main villain of season one, and he really doesn't. So he will mm-hmm. appear in season one supposedly, but more near the end. He's not the primary antagonist. Right. He kind of gets teased at near the end of the series, I suppose. Um, and that I think mm-hmm. is very. And so we know that. I think that's pretty well confirmed, which is good. I like that they're not jumping the gun with the introduction of, of Sauron. That becomes interesting. So, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, let me just, perhaps you know, what's Celebrimbor up to before the ring storyline kicks off in his interactions with, with Sauron? Do we know? I mean, Tolkien, did he talk to, I mean, he's ruling in Eregion, mm-hmm. or, but is there much more to it than that? Uh, in the lore, um, he's either, I think I mentioned this before, he's either ruling in Eregion as you know, the leader or he is it's Galadriel's realm. And, you know, he's the leader of the mm-hmm. wife of Myrdine, um, within a region before forging the rings. I mean, in the unfinished tales, we get more, um, in terms of actual narrative and actual interactions and scenes with him after the rings are forged, uh, because, you know, he discovers his, his error. Once Sauron is revealed, there's a whole deal with Sauron forging the one ring and then all the other elves, realize it killer Brimbor immediately goes to Galadriel to apologize and ask for her help and they disperse the the rings of power and then there's all the battles and he gets you know impaled and all that stuff so most of the drama plays out in the unfinished tales more or less after the the forging of the rings or during the forging of the rings that's kind of when his his plot picks up so there's not a whole lot mm-hmm. of uh not a lot of specific narrative stuff although there is um oh boy I'm trying to remember but he the dwarves right maybe something with the yeah dwarves. it is said that there had never been any greater friendship between dwarves and elves than the relationship between Eregion and the dwarves of casa doom so we are going to see a flourishing relationship a flourishing you know trade there and we see here in this tweet that they're going to forge rings together um and so it's not just i thought that was interesting and there's another tweet here actually i might as well just read it read it now get into it um that when they when they forge the rings 
they're actually doing it in the dwarven mines. So in one of the sound stages, there is a forging room set, which is part of the dwarven mines, and the rings will be forged there. Separate source described it as a rocky chamber. So it's very interesting to me that uh, we don't know if these are the rings of power, you know, the the nine, the seven, the the three, um, or if these are just the earlier essays in the craft that that get lost that Sauron recovers. I I think it's I hope it's the essays in the craft and not the primary rings of power. I think it'd be great if they ended the season with them sort of getting into forging rings, but not actually forging the rings, especially in a show called the rings of power. I don't think you want to actually forge the rings of power too early. Um, So I think they would start, you know, with the ring craft near the end of the season um, and toying around with it. And they forge some rings together in in Casa doom. Uh, We're not actually looking at the rings of power, but anyway, that, that gets back to, yeah, there's a very flourishing relationship between the Gwythi Myrdine and the Dwarves of Khazad Doom. So we're definitely going to see that that going on. There is also uh, one version of it where Killer Brimbor makes, I can't remember the name of it, makes some sort of jewel for like the LSR jewel. For, yeah, for uh-huh. it sprang yeah. to mind too. Yeah, well, maybe that's what he'll be doing for the first four episodes. Well, and that would set up, you know, because he is in some of these versions in love with Galadriel. Um, and he makes this gift for her, which, uh, boy, I'm blanking on the details. But you can go back and, listeners, go back to listen to uh, episode 11 where we where we get into that. But it, it's this jewel that, kind of like a ring of power, has the power to preserve and heal um, you know, to a lesser degree. And Galadriel ultimately gives up that jewel to her daughter, Calabrian, who passes it on to Arwen, I think. And then who gives it to Aragorn? I forget. Somehow it makes its way to Aragorn, but it's basically the LSR jewel. It comes from Celebrimbor through Galadriel to Aragorn at some point. Um, and she doesn't need it anymore once she gets a ring of power because it's like, you know, it has the same effect, but times 10. So to the extent they're going to explore this potential love triangle issue with um, Celebrimbor and Galadriel, we might get to see the forging of, of that, that jewel. That might be a way that they get into it. And that would be, you know, pre-rings of power. Well, I, I, when you mentioned the um, actor that's playing Celebrimbor, I, I was furiously Googling to see what this this guy looks like. I mean, you're right that he's he's an older-looking actor, so this makes me um, maybe to, to go back to what we were talking about earlier as far as how people regard him. You know, maybe in the show he will be portrayed as maybe a more older mm-hmm. and venerable elf obviously that doesn't make sense uh from a lore perspective with the books but you know maybe something like that will will won't stand in the way of so i you know tweaking these right. kind of character relationships to, to so i don't think that they're going in that direction because actually this is a replacement actor the original actor was tom budge and he was replaced after shooting began this is one of the the things that some people were holding up as an example of, oh, the, the production is in chaos. The show is going to be a disaster. They're replacing this major character, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, Tom Budge was a much younger actor. So at least they had written the character with a younger actor in mind at first and then later replaced him. So either they, maybe they changed some of the stuff to reflect the, the more aged appearance of Charles Edwards. But I think not. I think they're just not going to worry about it. <laughs> um, 
Well, I mean, I mean, when you got a billion dollars behind you, apparently de-aging sure. an actor is not a big, not a big sure. ask. Sure. So. Well, and the most important thing, people like to fret a lot about the way actors look. Um, the most important thing for me is can they act? And Charles Edwards can act. Um, he's in The Crown, does a great job in The Crown. Uh, that's where I know him primarily. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't know his CV exhaustively, but um, his work on the crown is very, very good. So I have no doubt that he'll, he'll do a good job. And um, so I'm perfectly happy with him being cast as Caleb Rimbor, his age, notwithstanding. Sure. No question. No question. I agree with you that, that a- acting is ultimately uh, the most important uh, part of an actor or an actress, but if they are presented as contemporaries and they are presented as having a shared history, but they look <laughs> vastly different in age, that does make people go, right, wait, what? Right, right. So, you know, it makes me think there might be some explanation for that. Because cause Galadriel's actress is Very pretty young, young yeah. looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's like the teenager and he's like the attractive grandfather <laughs> i would say so it's, it's, it's he's got he, he's got that granddad bod <laughs> it's gonna you know make even people who are not familiar with the lore maybe a little puzzled if they don't d- offer offer some right. sort of explanation it's like why isn't more. immortality working as well for Celebrimbor as it is for galadriel <laughs> <laughs> looks looks better on galadriel right right if you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast hosted by Rourke Tharmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of the Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read the Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to the Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right. Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. So the last tweet we got here about Celebrimbor uh, is the one that I'm a little concerned about, and I'll just read it here. Celebrimbor is alerted about the threat and growing fear of Adar in the East and wants to be prepared. The implication being that it's that desire to be uh, prepared against the threat of Adar that inspires him to forge the rings. Um, and also, you may not be aware of since you're not tracking it, but Adar is the intended antagonist of the first season, and he's being played by the actor who played Benjamin Stark in Game of Thrones, uh, you know, Uncle Ben, who ends up being Cold Hands, great character in the books, barely appears in the show. Um, but he's going to be Adar, and he's supposed to be an elf who's been corrupted and twisted and is leading a pack of orcs. So we don't have to get into that, <laughs> into Adar, um, because I think we would both have a lot to say about that. Um, I don't want to say that. I was actually, a... I was, w- I was with you up until you said he was an elf. I know. Uh, I was thinking an Easterling or something, which, which could be perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, but an elf, he, an elf. Did you say leading orcs? Yeah, exactly. Leading orcs, which we know, I mean, Tolkien explicitly said that they never really did. But, you know, let's set that aside because <laughs> we're going to do like a, a, a villain, you know, spoiler episode um, uh, coming up soon. So I want to talk more about that then. Um, 
and what this is saying is implying that Celebrim was aware of this the threat of Adar off in the east, and that that is why he's forging the rings. It's not exactly what it's saying, but and wants to be prepared. Uh, to me, the impl- implication is that that his desire to become prepared leads him to create the rings of power. If that's the direction they're going, if that's the motivation for him forging the rings, I would be a little bit upset about that. Don't count myself to be like a super crazy purist, but I, th- I think that really kind of undermines some fundamental aspects of the the Elvish experience, at least of the Noldoran elves in Middle-earth, um, what they're going through, uh, and the nature of the rings of power. So first, you know, the rings of power, um, they're not you know, military weapons. They don't grant its wearer military might or even the ability to, and Peter Jackson kind of glossed over this a little bit in the movies where they basically just said, it grants the wearer the, the strength and the will to govern each race. That's not actually what they what they do. The rings of power, the three rings, um, the elvish rings in particular, their power was to heal and preserve which speaks to the primary desire of the elves, the Noldoran elves, which is, you know, they want to make Middle-earth more like Amon, like Valinor, and they want to preserve their, you know, uh, the their elvish realms, which is actually kind of like almost, you know, sinful. It's a it's um it's a flaw in the Noldoran desire because it's not natural, and they want to preserve things past the point which is natural, and so it taps into the whole Noldoran discontent and their their experience in Middle Earth. They miss Valinor. They want to create something of their own here, which is prideful, but they also are wanting to preserve. And then they grow weary over time. And this is all you know part of the Noldoran experience. Um, and that's why they created the Rings of Power, and that's what they do. If you know taking this tweet on its face, it seems that they're completely subverting that, and saying, "Nah, they're just." you know, weapons of war, and the only reason Celebrimbor made it is because, not because he's obsessed with the craft and he, you know, wants to create things to preserve, um, it's because he wants a weapon to fight Adar in the East. If that's, if they simplify it and dumb it down and strip all that other stuff out, I'd be kind of upset. Yeah, right, well, sure. I I think uh, you don't have to be a diehard purist to, to say why. You know why? Why change that? I mean, I'm sure there are narrative reasons why they would want to do this, but it seems, yeah, it seems unnecessary to change such a fundamental thing about the nature of the rings and their creation. Um, and I was trying to, you know, while I was talking, I was trying to remember what it was uh, the nine rings that were given to the kings of men by Sauron. Um, do you remember what, how all the, the history there, how that, how that went as far as, um, and of course the one ring was created in secret, but the nine rings were created presumably by Celebrimbor. Right. Well, yeah, all of the, all of the rings of power were made by Celebrimbor or the Gwaifi Myrdain. Um, the, the three elven rings 
Well, let me be clear. You know, there's not actually a real distinction between elven rings and the rings for men and the rings for dwarves. Like, it's not like they said, oh, I'm making these for dwarves now. And, oh, I'm making these for men now. They just made a bunch of rings. Um, the reason that they're now known as the, you know, the nine rings for the men is because when Sauron captured all the rings other than the three, um, you know, they, he attacked Eregion, sacked it, basically got everything that was there which it means all the rings of power. He, he got them all except for the three, which they had dispersed among the wise, and they sort of fled. The elves fled. So Sauron got all these rings and then gave them out. So he gave nine to men, so then those become the nine rings of power for the men, and then uh, mortal men, and then he gives out seven to the dwarves. So it's not that they were designed with dwarves in mind or with men in mind. It's that Sauron, after he captured them, gave them out to, to the different races. Okay, is that so? You're you're positive about that that Celebrimbor didn't dis, didn't disseminate any of the rings other than there. The it, rings. it is said amongst the dwarves that at least one of the dwarven rings was made by Celebrimbor and given to the dwarves, so it wasn't tainted by um, by Sauron. So I think this is like the 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 ring given to Durin. They say mm-hmm. it wasn't a gift from Sauron that they wouldn't have taken it. So. Um, but even that, I think it's kind of presented as a, like the dwarves say, uh, that's mm-hmm. sort of how Tel- Tolkien presents it. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's, the case. that's the only one though that you're aware of. I believe so. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I suppose this could refer simply to all the other rings other than the elven rings. That's that true. Celebrimbor. He has this idea that in creating rings of power, he can shore up his defenses or create allies or, you know, whatever. That could be a motivation, I suppose, for creating these. And it doesn't necessarily, I mean, because what, and I don't, you, you know, this, this may be cleared up more in Tolkien's writings that maybe we're not, don't know off the top of our head, but as far as the intent that was put into the rings when making them, you know, other than the elven rings. And even then you were just saying, see, I always thought that the elven rings were distinct, not only um, in that they were unsullied, you know, by, by Sauron, I guess, but also that they had distinct purposes in, in their creation. You know, they have, they have individual names, they have, elements to which they are affiliated um but that they all seem to have that same purpose you're right in preserving and protecting um but as far as the the rings of men and and the dwarven rings i thought the dwarven rings were associated with you know with um lust or became at least lust for gold and, and accumulating riches um but I guess it's an open question whether that was the intent in forging them or whether that's just how they were used by Sauron. And so if it's the latter, then I guess it could be that when, you know, they were originally, the idea came to Celebrimbor that that, uh, he was just trying to find allies and create something that could be used as a resource for war but this does go back to what i asked you earlier and i don't know if you know the answer or not but whether or not the idea for the rings originated with celebrimbor or whether sauron came and introduced that to him i just i can't remember 
Yeah, so the chronology of that is, you know, Sauron comes in fair form as Anatar and appeals to Celebrimbor and the Gwythi Myrdain and their desire to learn craftsmanship. I mean, he, he appeals to their Aeolian nature, right? Uh-huh. They, and so he's like, I know all this stuff and I can share it with you. And they're very tempted and they, they're like, yeah, great. You know, come show us all your tricks. And um, it is after that that they start, that they conceive of the Rings of Power. So I think it's... Um, it's not clear whether it's Sauron's idea. Um, it doesn't explicitly say. It just says that that they come up with it together. That like together they conceive of the idea, um, and then it kind of says, "But in all these things, Sauron had a hand and guided them, and you know, to his perverted ends or whatever." I forget what the language is. Right. So this leak that says Celebrimbor is alerted about the threat and growing fear of Adar in the east and wants to be prepared. I mean, uh, I guess if they're sticking with Sauron being the instigator and sort of the driving force here behind Celebrimbor's actions that it would be him telling Celebrimbor you know well let's make these rings this will help you in the in the wars to come yeah that's an interesting point that would that would be interesting um and looming large over all these leaks is the fact that we don't know how Anatar slash Sauron will appear in these scenes whether he has appeared I mean chronologically in the lore he should be, pre- as we just discussed, he should be present before the they start forging the rings. You know, that craft is developed in concert with Sauron and he kind of, you know, perverts them and, you know, programs in a back door and creates the one ring, you know, from mm-hmm. the beginning, he, he undermines the whole enterprise. Um, but we've, the only thing we've heard about Sauron is that he will appear near the end of the, of season one. Um is that a tricky thing, though? Is it more like, oh, he's going to be Anatar throughout right. the season? No, one. exactly. Yeah, we don't know. And, right. Okay. So I wonder. I mean, yeah, yeah. So if that's if you know if that's it would make sense. It seems to me that if if what they mean by that is that he Sauron, his revelation will and his true motivations and whatever will not become apparent until after the first season or at the end of the first season. And prior to that, he'll just be a, you know, uh, maybe a, a protagonist or uh, presented as uh, a good guy. Right. But that would be an interesting approach that you suggested, you know, if he is actually there and kind of uses, uses the the threat of Adar to his own ends to sort of motivate Celebrimbor to start along this path of, of forging the rings of power. You know, it's like, this is an opportunity. I'm going to seize it. And and that's what kicks off the the ring making and Sauron is twisting it to his advantage. I I could get behind that. Yeah, and once again I don't I don't know what all has been uh revealed so far, so some of this stuff may be foreclosed by other other leaks, but I guess knowing what I know that that could be one interpretation and um if that is correct, then it wouldn't surprise me if Sauron's the one behind Adar too, and he's you know he's manipulating it from both sides. Well, and that is something that I would have made the most sense to me. But we've gotten some other leaks that indicated that Adar and Sauron are actually going to be at odds with each other. That there's actually going to be a showdown of sorts. I don't know if there's actually going to be like a fight, but there's going to be some sort of showdown between Adar and Sauron. Maybe like a battle of wills of of some kind near the end of the season. So. I don't think that Adar is like a vassal of Sauron or his agent in some way, or at least not knowingly. Yeah, not knowingly. So there's there's a passage here I was looking for um, when I was 
talking about the the Noldor sort of purpose in Middle Earth and the way that the the Rings of Power um, fit into that. So this is from Of the Rings of Power and the Third Age in the Silmarillion. It says, It was in Region that the councils of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. And sort of sidebar, when Tolkien uses the word subtlety, it is not a positive word. It has a negative connotation. Um, moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts since they had refused to return into the West, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Therefore, they hearkened to Sauron, and they learned of him many things. And then later on, when describing the characteristics of the Rings of Power, now these were the, the three rings, the Elven Rings. Now these were the three that had last been made, and they possessed the greatest powers. Narya, Nenya, and Vilya, they were named the rings of fire and of water and of air set with ruby and adamant and sapphire and of all the elven rings Sauron most desired to possess them for those who had them in their keeping could ward off the decays of time and postpone the weariness of the world. So the, the it's the, these last three rings, the elven rings that most feed into the elves desire, you know, to, to postpone the weariness of the world and preserve, the, you know, the qualities of Valinor that they craved and missed which is also the very thing that Sauron tapped into to corrupt them in the first place, to trick them into making the rings. So all those, all those qualities kind of, all those things kind of work in concert together. And um, if they were to miss that, I think it would be a, a big loss. Well, I would agree as far as, uh, you know, I changes like that, any sort of foundational changes um, should not be made lightly. And they would have they would have to have a a pretty good reason for doing it, and I can't think of one. Right. <laughs> I, I would need some convincing, some big time convincing. Well, I think that will do it. I think we can call that a podcast. Um, we got no more Celebrimbor to discuss, um, so let's let's call it an episode. Uh, thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you like what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate it if you. Uh, liked, rated, and subscribed. Share us with your friends. It really helps others to find us. You can find us uh, on social media, on Facebook, or on Twitter, at LOTR Party. Uh, please also email us, watchpartylotr at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments and questions, and uh, we may discuss them on the air. And if you're into this whole fantasy thing, please check out our sister podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time. They release an episode every Tuesday, and uh, the great hosts, Rourke and Saima, experts in the wheel of time are guiding a panel of newbies who have never read the books uh, as they watch the show and experience robert jordan's legendarium for the first time through amazon show so go check that out every tuesday well joel i really appreciate you joining me and i hope i can uh convince you to come back sometime something tells me it won't be that hard to get you back because we just like talking about this stuff yeah yeah i think uh i think this was fun so yeah thanks for having me on and course the question is always do people like to listen to us talk about it so that's uh that's the question that needs to be answered before you decide to have me not back. not a concern of mine <laughs> not a concern of mine i'll shout it to the void if, if i want to <laughs>
Hmm. I have two opposing uh, feelings in my mind. One is uh, what would Tolkien approve of as an answer <laughs> and what would my actual answer be? Um, I am not a lust for power kind of person. I'm not a lust for gold kind of person. I do like to be comfortable and take it easy. And I like nice surroundings. So I'm kind of on board with what the elves were doing. Now, let me be clear. But you don't have you to were... limit it to the, you know, any of the existing rings of power. You've made one all, all for yourself. So you can mm-hmm, mix and match. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although it sounds like you're describing a ring of power for the hobbits. <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of a, a hybrid ring between the hobbits and the elves, I suppose. Because, um, you know, those creature comforts. The elves weren't big on those, but the hobbits were, and I am. So, And Tolkien was, too, so he would have appreciated that. Um, the simple life, you yeah. know, beautiful countryside, this, this sort of thing. Um, so I wouldn't mind having the ability to sort of mold the world around me to something like that. Uh, so, sort of an idyllic uh, environment where time passed slowly and the stress of, and worries of the world were not so, you know, close at hand, that sort of thing. Right. Um, so that would have, I guess that would have to be a, a part of my ring of power. Um, I mean, immortality's at least, you know, at first glance doesn't seem like too bad of a thing. But obviously, Tolkien tells us otherwise. So, but you know, you might as well throw it in there because if you ever regret it, you know, there's a way to, <laughs> there's a way to give it up. I mean, unless you mm. know, we're talking about vampiric immortality, where it's like you literally cannot die; you're like tied to the earth. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like those kind of go go hand in hand sometimes. Like it turns out turns out to be a curse, uh, you know. The originally you'd think of it as as being a blessing so yeah i think that i think that would that would be my answer the the ability to make my surroundings idyllic and then get the time to enjoy it now just a clarifying point is, is this ring giving you the ability to like cook better food and build a better house or is it like you're snap you're like snapping your finger and you get not good food no no yeah no it's not uh it's doesn't you don't just get anything you want it's more just you know i think that mo- when you look at life if we were able to snap our fingers and get whatever we want we don't find much happiness in right that, you don't appreciate right? what you it's, get yeah, it's um it's the journey to get there. It's the work involved. It's it's the ability to pursue an interest and improve in it. Improve improve uh in that area and see, you know, the fruits of your labor. That's the real enjoyment in life. So if you have the right environment and the amount of time necessary, then you can really pursue sort of a a life 
worth living without needing to to deal with all the meanness of modern existence right see what i'm saying yeah yeah so that's that's the sort of environment i'd like to cultivate around me with my with my ring of power i don't even i guess it's a power in a sense i was going to say it's not it's not much it's more of like a ring of well it's a ring of power in the sense that the elven elven rings were rings of power with a little bit of with a dash of hobbit hobbit good sense thrown in there this this is reminding me of a conversation we had uh, in the cabin where he asked me if I wanted to go on a spaceship to another planet and be a farmer. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like you, you know, Tolkien loved the beautiful countryside and sort of that uh, that lost that kind of society or civilization that was going away, you know, around him, and uh, and I can I can understand that. Yeah. But with that usually comes the, you know, the the toil. You lose some of the conveniences, of course, of modern society. So um, if you didn't have to worry about that right. sort of thing, you could just enjoy enjoy the, the good, simple life. Right. You, so like you can you can enjoy the laboring because there is like a joy that comes from laboring to a certain degree. But when labor becomes oh, uh, yeah. toil, then absolutely. It's, it's, you know, so you're taking the toil out of it, which is kind of like the way that Tolkien described <clears throat> the life for the for the elves in Valinor. Like, you know, they farming wasn't a toil; like things were just abundant, and they would go and just gather it up. You know, and and they would sure they would plant seeds, and they would, but they didn't have to toil to cultivate their crops, and so they would right. And they couldn't they couldn't snap their fingers and create a Silmaril. It was. Uh, but the environment was right for it and the time they had the time and they could pursue that skill and become, you know, uh, exceedingly good at it and then, and then reap the fruits of their, their labor. Right. I like that answer. If, if ever there's an opportunity to create a ring of power, I might borrow it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could just keep it simple and say, you know, lots of money. And then yeah, maybe that's that a, that's a means thing. to that same <laughs> same end. Right.